This is Wide Margins, Episode 17, Unaware. The story of Samson may be the best loved, the best known part of the book of Judges. For good reason, Samson is full of colorful imagery, adventure, romance, tragedy, heroism, victory. It's just a great story, and it's no surprise that this story is celebrated and retold in songs, in poems, all, all over the place, stories, so many different ways. It's a story we've studied ever since we were kids. One song goes, Chained to the pillars, a three-day party, I break the walls and kill us all with holy fingers. The inimitable words of Frank Black. You know, I look at that and I see the clarity of Samson in that action at the end of his life where he brought down the house on the whole party of the Philistines. Sorry if you never read the story. I just spoiled it for you. That's how it ends. You know, that's what makes the story great. If you had everything leading up to it, but you didn't have that end, it would be a real disappointment because there's so much confusion between the beginning and the end. Samson doesn't seem to realize who he is, even though more than any other, he has been prepared to be the 12th judge of Israel. He needs an awakening, and he gets it at the end. But before that, he's asleep, and before that, his parents are unaware. It seems to me that this is a great way to outline the story of Samson, to start with the birth story, or really before that, of Samson, and speak of the unawareness of his parents. That's what we're going to do in this episode. That's followed by this long period of Samson's sleep, if you want to look at it that way. Sometimes he's literally asleep. That's what gets him into trouble. He's fallen asleep, and he doesn't seem to understand his place in the world. He has this great power, and he uses it, but he does, it, he does so in ways that frustrate his true purpose in life. But at the very end, he wakes up, and in that awakening, he realizes his true purpose and fulfills it and earns his place in the Hall of Faith. The book of Hebrews talks about many of the judges. Only some of them are given by name, and despite all of his flaws, Samson is mentioned among a few others. What more shall I say, for time would fail to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release, so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and in caves of the earth. Samson was among that great number 
only because of the clarity he achieved at the very end. And this is what all the songs herald and sing about. Another one that I like is a traditional song that has recently been recorded by Willie Watson. It's called Samson and Delilah. And the first verse says, Delilah was a woman, she was fine and fair. She had good looks and coal black hair. Delilah, she gained old Samson's mind. When first he saw this woman, you know, he couldn't believe his mind. So Samson, he's just, he's totally lost his mind. He's asleep. He is literally asleep in Delilah's lap, and we know what happens. But the refrain repeats over and over again in this song. If I had my way, I would tear this building down. And that's what he did. He finally woke up, tore down the building, and won the victory for God. Not without a great cost. We're going to examine this. We're going to look at this. And we're going to start, though, before Samson wakes up, even before he's born, with his parents, who are in this state of slumber themselves, unaware of the greatness that had come upon them. I was reading from Hebrews just a minute ago. Do you remember that statement in Hebrews? Really mysterious statement. It's one of the ones, it's, a, it's like a warning, really, from Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2. It's always mystified me, and I've always wondered about the true implications of it, where he says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. I know that he's probably referring to Abraham and those three guests that Abraham took into his tent in Genesis chapter 18, but it applies to Judges chapter 13 as well, because Samson's parents, Manoah and his unnamed mother, entertain the angel of the Lord without knowing it. They later came to realize it, but at first they had no idea. This is how cycle number seven of the book of Judges begins, and the introduction to the twelfth judge and the final judge will be introduced to in the book, Samson. Verse 1 picks up with that same cycle, saying that the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. I say cycle, it's really becoming more like a little letter C, isn't it? It's, it's not even a full cycle anymore because in the beginning you'd see them repent, and you'd see the Lord deliver them, but now they're just doing evil and skipping the repentance part, and God has mercy on them, at least this one last time. It's, we, we see the downward spiral that I've been talking about. The, the cycle was there, but it was strong and complete in the beginning with Othniel and Ehud and Shamgar and the others. Then we get through Gideon, and things really spiral out of control. The judges become weaker, and even in the case of a powerful judge like this one, there's so much oblivion. There's so much unawareness. It's really disheartening to see. Israel is spiraling out of control. Now, verse 2 says we're introduced to a new cast of characters like we are with all of these cycles. And we're introduced to a man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and she had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren, and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore be careful, and drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son, 
No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. You might have heard the word Nazarite and thought of Jesus because he was born in Nazareth. And Jesus is even called, I think, in some places a Nazarene. That's not the same thing as what is being talked about here. This is a reference to the Nazarite vow. And if you want to read up on it, you can go to Numbers chapter 6, but I'm going to give you a crash course on the Nazarite vow. Nazarite is a word that is derived from a Hebrew term, Nazir, which means simply to separate. It's the idea of consecrating someone to God, separating them, making them distinct above and beyond everybody else. And there are four Bible characters usually associated with the Nazarite vow in the Bible. There's Joseph, of whom it is said he was separate in the blessings of his father Jacob in Genesis 49. This predates the Nazarite vow, so it's not really related to the Nazarite vow. There's Samuel, of whom it is not necessarily said that he explicitly took the Nazarite vow, but it seems that way because he was separated from from uh, childhood when he was weaned from his mother for tabernacle service. You can read about that in the first part of First Samuel. Paul took a vow, and it's unclear whether it was really a Nazarite vow. And then there's Samson, the only real clear case of someone taking a Nazarite vow. Now, what was the Nazarite vow? If you go to number six, it involves three prohibitions. Number one, and some of these are alluded to in the warnings in the statement given by the angel of the Lord to Samson's mother. First of all, they were to abstain from any part of or the product of the grapevine. That means no grape juice, no grapes, uh, from seed to skin, no grapes. And that includes, of course, wine in its alcoholic form or in its non-alcoholic form. People normally took part drinking wine in those societies. Uh, they would eat the grapes. The vineyard was a very important part of agriculture. And so if you were to abstain from that, you were to have a very different diet than everybody else. Number two, abstain from cutting the hair. This is the one that people think of the most because it's the most obvious and it was a key part of Samson's story. We won't get into the plot line in this episode, but you probably know it already. Samson had this long hair, and up into his adult years anyway, it had never been cut. And Samson nor his mother were to cut their hair. At least she wasn't while she was carrying him in her womb. So that's the second part. The hair, people often suspect, had something to do with the life force. Because hair grows, it has a kind of a life of its own. It's a sign of youth. Uh, it even grows beyond the death of the body. Yeah, that's kind of a gory detail, but it seems to enter into this idea that it's your life force, and it certainly seemed to be the symbol in Samson's life. And then finally, the prohibition, the third prohibition, was to abstain from contact with a dead body. And you might think, well, you know, I'd be glad to do that, but if you have a loved one who died and you want to prepare the body, or you want to go to the funeral e e even, that was prohibited by the Nazarite vow. If you were a Nazarite, you couldn't live like everybody else. You couldn't eat and drink the way that everybody ate and drank. 
You couldn't look the way everybody looked. You couldn't even deal with the passing of your loved ones the way that normal people did. You were abnormal. You were distinct. You were set apart in a very obvious way for God's service. The Nazarite vows described in the book of Moses, in the books of Moses, uh, was voluntary for everybody except Samson. If the angel of the Lord is commanding his mother to make her son take the Nazarite vow, Samson is the one case where he is devoted to this vow for life without his accepting that or turning it down. He had no choice. He was involuntarily a Nazarite. But before his birth, he was named as someone special. And that's an important part of this, of course. Let's continue reading about what happens in the fallout of this visitation of the angel of the Lord to Samson's mother. She, of course, goes and tells her husband Manoah about it, and he feels that he has missed out. And so he tells her, pray to the Lord and ask him to uh, to to send the angel of the Lord back. In fact, Manoah is the one who did the praying. Verse 8 says, He prayed to the Lord and he said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again to us and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. And God listened to the voice of Manoah. And the angel of the Lord came again to the woman as she sat in the field, but Manoah, her husband, was not with her. I think this is really interesting that... Um, he keeps coming to Samson's mother. She's never named. She's mentioned 19 times or more in this account. She's obviously emphasized. And it brings us back to this theme of the woman that you see in an unusual number of times in the book of Judges. This is unusual for an Old Testament book, but it's unusual for a New Testament book for a woman to be emphasized this way. We started with Deborah and Jael, and then you get into the story of Abimelech, and it's an, a certain woman, an unnamed woman, who drops a stone on Abimelech's head and kills him dead. You have the daughter of Jephthah also mentioned. Uh, she's not a hero per se, but she's the most likable person in that story. And then here you have Samson's mother. Although his father is the one who's named, the mother is the one to whom the angel of the Lord speaks and continues to appear to, even when Manoah entreats him to come to him. So she has to run and get her husband and bring him back to where the angel of the Lord is. And Manoah gets an opportunity to ask his question. Verse 11, he goes and he, he goes to what, he appear, what appears to him to be a man. And he says, are you the man who spoke to this woman? He's talking about his wife there. Guys, don't do that. Don't say, this woman, that's my wife. Uh, so, are you the one who spoke to this woman? He said, I am. And Manoah said, Now when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life? What is his mission? That seems like a, a likely question to this prophet who came to a barren woman and says, You're going to have a son. And he's obviously a special son. Manoah is obviously a believer in this man. He doesn't know yet that he's talking to somebody supernatural from heaven. But he believes enough, and he asks a respectable question. But look at the answer. The angel of the Lord says, verse 13, Of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat of anything that comes from the vine. Neither let her drink wine or strong drink, 
or eat any unclean thing, all that I commanded her, let her observe. Don't you love that? I, I just, I absolutely love that. Manoah is, he seems a little left out. He prays to the Lord to send the angel. The angel comes back, but he comes to his wife again. She has to go get Manoah. Manoah finally gets to ask his question, and he's totally, the question's totally ignored. He thinks he has a good question, but the angel of the Lord, almost in frustration, says, let me repeat these instructions one more time. I was pretty clear that she is to have a son, and she's to be careful not to eat of anything that comes from the vine, don't drink wine, no unclean thing, all that I command her, observe, and that's it. That's all you get. Isn't it interesting that when the parents want to know what needs to become of their unborn child, God says, be careful and look at yourself. Maybe he's doing that, just maybe, because if we want our children to grow up to serve God and to be consecrated to God, we have to be consecrated to God first. It's not going to happen with us focusing on what we want our kids to do. Sure, we need to draw boundaries, we need to have rules, we need to have a vision for them, a dream for them, of course. But none of that is going to pan out if we aren't first consecrated to the Lord, if we don't set the example and live the way that we should live. It's too early for them to be thinking about Samson He's not even born yet. Who knows? He may not have been conceived yet. Concentrate on yourself. Follow the instructions that I gave you. Sometimes we make it a lot more complicated than it needs to be. We just need to do our part. Follow the Lord. Now, a key part of this first chapter of Samson's life is how unaware Manoah and his wife are about the person to whom they're talking. We've talked about this character, the angel of the Lord, many times before. He's first introduced to us, I think, in Judges chapter 2 at Bochum. He's the one that comes to the Israelites and tells them that they're going to be delivered over to their oppressors because they've been worshiping idols and not following the ways of the Lord. We've talked about the mysterious nature of him and how he speaks for God. We've discussed the possibility that this could be Jesus before his incarnation, pre-incarnate Jesus, uh, so he wouldn't be Jesus at this point. He's strictly divine. He has not been born of a woman. He's not human and divine yet. He's not the Son of Man yet. It's very possible this is the second person of the Godhead known as the Son, but we don't know that for sure. We just know that he speaks as God. He doesn't just speak for God. He speaks as God, and you see that come out again in a number of ways. I counted about six of them as it began to dawn upon Manoah and his wife that they were talking to somebody special. Look at the last part of this chapter and notice how this awareness just progressively dawns upon them. First of all, Manoah wants to know the angel of the Lord's name. And the angel in verse 18 gives him this really cryptic answer. He says, "Why?" he doesn't like answering Manoah's questions. Why do you ask my name seeing it is wonderful? One translation says mysterious, or it is a mystery. It's the same word used in the next 
verse to describe the wonder-working of God. It just basically means that if he told them his name, they wouldn't understand it. They wouldn't understand it at all. And you have to understand that names were not just labels in those days. They were identities. So they wouldn't understand the identity of this person. Does that necessarily mean he's divine? I don't know yet if if it means, if it conclusively proves that, but it's one step in that direction. Then, after that, she calls him, or one of them calls, let's see, verse 19. Manoah, he takes the young goat with a grain offering and offers it on the rock to the Lord. And the narrator calls him, to the one who works wonders. And Manoah and his wife were watching. So secondly, this person is referred to as the one who works wonders. Wonders being a translation is the same term used to describe his name or his identity in the previous verse. So that's the second thing. He's called the one who works wonders. Then, when this grain offering is prepared, a flame goes up towards heaven, verse 20, from this altar that Manoah made. And the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. He just disappears into smoke. That's pretty amazing. So that's the third thing. Then in the fourth case, verse 22, Manoah and his wife get really scared about all of this. And they say, we shall surely die, for we have seen God. They believe they have seen God. And again, that's not conclusive evidence, but when you put it together with all this other, it's a pretty good case that the angel of the Lord is divine. But then in verse 23, the wife says, If the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands. Now, there are two things there. First, she uses the name of the Lord for the angel of the Lord. The word Lord capital L-O-R-D, is used a few times by Manoah, which is not the personal name of God, but here she is using capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D in your English translation, which is a trans translation of the word Yahweh, the personal name of the Lord. She's calling him by his name now and pointing out that he accepted an offering. So if you were counting there, that was six things that showed that this was a divine character. If you want to just call him God and leave it at that, that's fine with me. If you want to think of him as the second person of the Godhead, I think that there's sufficient evidence to entertain that idea. Don't want to be saying that with certainty, but it's a pretty interesting idea. Whatever, but just don't think this is a simple messenger from God. This is God speaking to them, and they realize at the end that they're wrong about their idea of God. Their idea of God was that he was someone to remain distant, someone caring, being, all-powerful, but who wanted to destroy them, and they came away realizing the mercy of God. He announced these things to us, and in verse 24, or verse 23, she said, if he meant to kill us, he wouldn't have accepted this burnt offering. He wouldn't have accepted a grain offering, or shown us these things, or announced to us such things as these. She sees grace in God instead of wrath and instead of death. Death was what they were expecting. They were unaware of whom 
they spoke until they saw him face to face and they realized God is not who we thought. One of the biggest problems facing the people of Jesus' day was a lack of awareness. The Pharisees, they didn't understand Christ or God's will because they were unaware of him when he was standing right in front of them. That's why he was so judgmental towards the villages of Capernaum and, and of uh, Nazareth and, and the other places, Bethsaida, saying that it would be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon and for Sodom than it will be for them on the Day of Judgment. He was there. They had the opportunity to repent. They saw mighty works that the people of Sodom never saw, and they wouldn't repent. They were unaware that the Lord was in their presence. This is a problem, and it's a problem we're facing today. Just like then, Jesus is saying, Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And many of us have no idea who he is or where he is. For example, in Matthew 25, you have this judgment scene predicted by Jesus himself. He says, The Son of Man will come in his glory, and the angels will come with him, and he'll sit on his glorious throne, and he'll separate the sheep from the goats, and he'll turn to the sheep on his right, and he'll say, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and thirsty and a stranger and naked and clothed? and in need of clothing, when do we see you sick and in prison? And he said to them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. He turns to the goats, Depart from me, you cursed, into the place prepared for the devil and his angels. I was hungry and you didn't feed me. I was thirsty and you didn't give me drink, and so on. Lord, when did we see you in these conditions? And he said, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. Where is Jesus? One of the places we can find him today is in the faces of the poor and the hurt and those who need compassion those who have suffered great losses that's where he is and we walk by them and never give them a look we're worse than Manoah preparing some grain offering to send up to heaven when God is standing right in front of us I heard somebody one time describe compassion in terms of awareness so this is basically the same thing, and I like that concept. Because compassion is just being aware of the needs around you, being empathetic to the people around you. We've got our noses in our cell phones, walking around thinking about ourselves, selfish, wallowing in self-pity, and people are all around us just needing a listening ear or a helping hand. Unawareness is killing us spiritually. We've got to wake up. We've got to know 
where God is. We've got to look into the faces of the hungry and the thirsty and see Jesus there because he tells us, that's where I am. At the end of chapter 13, everything comes to pass just as the angel of the Lord said that it would. The woman bore a son, called his name Samson, and the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him. And we read that in this place between Zorah and Eshtaol, the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him. The verb there is sometimes translated drive. It literally means to pound or to pulsate, which is fitting to the way the Spirit worked with Samson in his story. It's never used of any of the other judges. Of the other judges, the Spirit falls on them or consumes them in some way and stays with them. It's certainly not the same as with Jesus, upon whom the Spirit descended and remained, John chapter 1 verse 33. With Samson, the Spirit pounded. It pulsated. He seemed to be there and then not. Because with Samson, there were periods of clarity, separated by vast wildernesses of unawareness and even sleep. One of the most difficult questions that I have heard about the afterlife is, how can heaven be blissful and happy when we carry with us the memories of this life? There are a lot of joyful memories and there are painful memories. And it might be that the painful memories could dampen the joyful ones and even stamp them out in the afterlife. The Bible teaches that we are conscious beings with memories in heaven. And it explains this problem of the painful memories of the past life, saying in Revelation 21 verse 4, that God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. I don't know how that works, but I believe in God's power to do that. He is the comforter. He can comfort us for an eternity of life with him. The Greeks had a different idea. They conceptualized a river in the underworld called Lethe. Lethe is the Greek word for oblivion. And it was said that the dead departed to this underworld, drank from the rivers of Lethe, and forgot. Went into, if not a blissful oblivion, at least one that was peaceful. And I want to end today's podcast with a reading from Ovid's Metamorphosis, in which he describes this river of forgetfulness, because I think the oblivion of it well describes the slumber state of Samson and his parents at the beginning of the story. But from the bottom of a rock beneath, Lathian waters of a stream ooze forth, sounds of a rivulet which trickle with soft murmuring amid the pebbles and invite soft sleep. Before the cavern doors, most fertile poppies and a wealth of herbs bloom in abundance, from the juice of which the humid night hours gather sleep and spread it over darkened earth. No door is in that cavern home, and not a hinge's noise nor guarding porter's voice disturbs the calm. But in the middle is a resting couch, raised high on the night-black ebony, and soft with feathered cushions, all jet black concealed by rich coverlet as dark as night, on which the god of sleep, dissolved in sloth, 
lies with unmoving limbs. Around him, there in all directions, unsubstantial dreams recline in imitation of all shapes, as many as the uncounted ears of corn at harvest, as the myriad leaves of trees or tiny sand grains spread upon the shore. That's all for this episode of Wide Margins. We'll continue with Samson next episode.